My name is Dr. Ethel Tunkelheim. I'm a writer, a researcher, an associate professor of politics, and an activist. This is Academic Antis. In today's episode, we're in conversation with Dr. Gulzar Sharanya about her new book, Fighting Feelings, Lessons in Gendered Racism and Queer Life. Fighting Feelings is about Black and racialized women answering the question, quote, how and in what directions do we learn to think, act, and live in relation to racism, end quote. This book touches on so many things that we talk about regularly on Academic Antis. How women of color navigate intensely white spaces, how perceptions of our excellence can only really be understood in relation to who doesn't get to be excellent, and how, as Gulzar writes, we constantly, quote, fight feelings and other times use feelings to fight, end quote. What I really love about the book is how it centers the narratives that Black and racialized women shared with Gulzar. They tell deeply personal stories, some, as we talk about later in our conversation, told for the very first time. These stories dive into women's navigation of home, school, and other institutions, and the various ways that they develop racial literacies. It is a book that I really think all of you will love, and I'm so happy that we had a chance to talk to Gulzar about her journey in writing it. Here is our conversation. For today's episode of Academic Antis, I am so honored to have Dr. Gulzar R. Sharanya here with us to talk about her remarkable book, Fighting Feelings, Lessons in Gendered Racism and Queer Life. Academic Antis listeners, I read this book and I have a lot of feelings and it's just such a remarkable, remarkable contribution Hi, Ethel. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really pleased to be here. My name is uh, Gulzar Charanya. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm an associate professor, and I work and teach at the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies at the University of Ottawa. And really broadly, my, my research is really interested in studying the architecture of white supremacy, how it operates as a system, and the kinds of impacts that it has on Black and racialized folks, and particularly on their educational trajectories and experiences of schooling and on their political formation. And my research and teaching commitments are really formed by women of color feminists, critical race, and queer theories and approaches to doing research. Fantastic. So Gulzar, congratulations on the book. Thank you, Ethel. You know what it takes to put a book out in the world. So I'm really grateful that that it's out and I'm grateful for the space you're creating to have a conversation about it. Fantastic. So by way of introduction to the book and by way of discussing the genealogy of the book, I believe that you wanted to read an excerpt. I did. The book begins with a story and it was this story, Ethel, that I heard at a dinner party that haunted me. It, it would not leave mm. me alone. So I ended up writing a very long paper about this story, and that paper eventually turned into this, this book project. So I just wanted to read the, this is from the, the beginning of the book. This book has many beginnings. For now, we will start with a story and a dinner party. 
It was late, and there were only four of us left. The light mood and uproarious laughter gave way to more serious conversations. Things got quieter. A woman whom I call Sarah told a story that she had never told, a story that I could not forget. It was the late 1970s. Sarah was in grade six and lived in a new publicly subsidized housing subdivision with many young families. Because there was not a school close by, Sarah and the other neighborhood kids were bused to and from the closest school. The kids met at central pickup points and were dropped off at the end of the day in groups. Describing herself as brown, Sarah recalled another brown student named Fatima who liked to be called Fati. Fati was hassled both on and off the bus, called racist names and chased and pushed around. Sarah recalls that at some point, she assumed that it was partly because of these incidents, Fatima was dropped off before the other students, not at the common drop-off place. Sarah speculated that the point of this change was to make it harder for the kids to rough up Fatima as she walked home. Instead, Fatima's earlier drop-off turned into a challenge for Sarah and the other students to chase the kid down. Sarah remembered their renewed efforts to catch Fatima. The people who were sprinting after her were the athletes. It was a bunch of white kids and me. I don't remember calling her names, but I know that I did. I remember very much being involved, but I wasn't the leader. I almost remember having the feeling that the kid was not human. It felt justified. So that's the the story that uh, Fighting Feelings begins with and the kinds of questions that Sarah's story opens up onto in terms of, you know, white supremacy as a really complex system that both harms Black and racialized folks, but also invites us to reproduce it and sometimes in efforts to stay safe. And so to me, Sarah's story opened up onto these really difficult but important questions and ideas that that the book explores through the narratives of other Black and, and racialized women. I really liked this story because it, well, I didn't like it, but, you know, I think a lot of moments in this book were so familiar and painful. I found that a lot of these stories have been haunting me, perhaps because they remind me of my own childhood as a racialized girl. And the book itself has several chapters. The one that kind of, and this is for listeners as well, the one that kind of really resonated with me profoundly was when you talked about schools and teachers as gatekeepers. I think one question I had for you was, what was it like to listen to these stories, to carry these stories, to make sense of these stories. And I think for the chapter on on school and teachers and gatekeepers, I found the story shared by Neelam um, really, really resonant. So for listeners, Neelam was falsely accused by her teacher of plagiarizing a story that she actually wrote. And I know that this isn't a rare story. In fact, this happened to me. In grade nine, I had a social studies report, which I wrote. I mean, at that point, there wasn't even really, I mean, there was internet, but our house didn't have internet. So I did actually write it and went to the library, spent a lot of time writing it. And then I got comments back and my teacher was like, this was plagiarized, right? And that was shocking because, you know, you're 13, you don't really know what this accusation means. And then it makes you see how other people see you. And that to me, 
as well as with Nila was Nilam was also such a revelatory moment of structures of racism. So I could go on and on, but how did it, how was it like to listen to these stories and to carry these stories and to make sense of them? There were so many moments where I'm just like, my gosh, Gulzar, you're bearing witness to these stories alongside these women. The chapter on schooling is the longest chapter in the book. I could have written endlessly because it was alarming. The number of racist incidents that were recounted, it was just endless. I, I can't even, there were just hundreds of them, Ethel, hundreds of them. And I think you're right to point out that Neelam's story is a collective story, right? We, we all have these stories. And almost all of the women in this book talked about experiences of being accused of plagiarism and teachers not believing that they had produced this story or in your case produced that project and so many people talked about it but then Neelam comes around and tells the story that she does and Neelam was interesting as a participant because she was one participant that I interviewed twice and so she she reappears in the book a number of times because our in collective interviews were about six hours so we just yeah. talked for a long time and she talks about many incidents of racism leading up to this very decisive moment. She talks about how much she loves to write. She had stayed up all night writing the story. And then when the teacher is giving all the stories back, she calls Neelam out into the hall and asks her who wrote this story. And Neelam decides in that moment that she can no longer be in schools. It is just a, such a decisive moment in her educational journey being faced with this teacher and her racist accusation. And she says, after that, I can't tell you a week after that, that I went to school without skipping. Oh. I can't remember a week. And so I think there's so many things to kind of unwrap in that story. First of all, there was almost always a white woman teacher at the yes. end of these incidents. And I think there there's a lot to think about in terms of the participation of white women in racial violence against black and racialized children and youth that really requires attention. And also, I set out to write a book about racialized women undergraduate students. I did not set, set out to write a book about childhood. And yet when people came to the interviews, they talked about their childhoods in such elaborate, extensive ways that I couldn't understand their experiences of being in university unless I really went back. And I just found myself writing so much about their childhoods. And so the book was really unexpected in that way. But, you know, Neelam in, in the book and in the interview says, you know, I still can't be in classrooms today. She's reflecting on what it means oh. to be in university. She says, I still can't. And I know I've had some good teachers since then, and I've had some terrible teachers since then, but I can't be in schools because I can't trust that this is going to be a place where I am seen and where I am respected. And so it, it's a really complicated story. And to kind of add, you know, another layer of it, I think there's a really interesting article by Zeus Leonardo and Alicia Broderick that I cite in that. And they build in really interesting ways on Cheryl Harris's kind of analysis of whiteness as property. And they talk about smartness as property. Mm. And they say, listen, it's perfectly understandable that people who have been cast aside by educational institutions would claim smartness as a category that we want entry into like look at our look at how smart we are look at how capable we are mm. 
They say this is an understandable strategy, but of course the problem with this strategy is it strengthens the regimes between the smart and the not smart. Yes. And part of what they argue is we don't want to strengthen these things. We actually want to abolish these things. Mm. And so there's so many layers of thinking. You know, Rosalind Hampton has a new piece out on Black Studies Without Excellence, and I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But I think there, there is something to think about around also how we harness Neelam's story to say, look at how excellent she is. Look at what a great writer she was. Neelam didn't need to be a great writer. Mm. She was a great writer. We know we know Neelam wrote the story. We know you wrote the project. It's not surprising to us. But I do, I think these concerns around how excellence can be mobilized for some of us to get entry into this select group is something that we need to be wary and cautious of at the same time that we want to insist that Neelam's story was excellent and she did write it. So I want to bring up the story of Usha, right? In many ways, I could also see myself in Usha. Like, I could see myself in a lot of these narratives. Do you want to kind of share with the listeners Mm -hmm. who Usha was and her narrative? Yeah, so Usha is also one of the narratives in the schooling chapter. And, and you know, it's it's hard to talk about the participants, Ethel. I kind of just want to insert that here, because one of the things I, I've tried really hard to do in the book is not to sum people up. And, you know, part of that was trying to be less extractive about how we, we talk. And so there's lots of layers in the book, and I kind of unravel people slowly through the book, yeah. because I wanted their lives to be like unfolding stories, and I wanted yeah. them to have space and, and attention on the page. I'm happy to talk about Usha, but also, you know, one of the things the book tries to do is to say that these are not different types of people, Neelam and Usha. These are different types of strategies that people use to respond to white supremacy. And we see ourselves in lots of different people. We rely on different strategies at different times, depending on how safe we are, depending on the risks that we can take, depending on how we've learn to understand the system, or we don't have the words to understand the system, and we know something's wrong, and we're trying to fumble through and figure out, as these these children were trying to figure out, like, what is wrong? What is happening in school yeah. right now? You know, and so Usha is interesting in that she's one of the, the people who says, you know, she had really good teachers. And she's reflecting on how difficult it is to remember her experience of schooling because of all of the work that she did as a racialized girl to ensure that she had a good education. And part of that was distancing herself from other racialized kids. Part of that was, you know, currying favor with teachers in a particular way. So she understood that she had to do all of this work and labor. And in the interviews, it's really hard for her to look at that work and that labor. You know, Neelam and Usha and many others, they came to the interviews Ethel, and they had never talked about these things ever Mm. to anybody else. And many of them said to me, I'm going to tell you this story because I think it's really important for someone to write about this stuff. I think it's really important that this not happen to other people, but I'm just going to tell you and then it's going to go back to where it was, which is I'm never speaking about it again. And so Mm. I think there's a lot of ways that the harm of racism is privatized, right? People live with these really difficult and painful memories and so to me, back to your question about what it what it means to bear witness, what it means to think about these stories as a responsibility and a gift, I think I, I also really 
felt a sense of gratitude to the participants because they came and they it wasn't easy it wasn't fun they did, you know for some of them it was an opportunity to talk about racial violence which they had never done or very rarely done and so there was a generosity that i felt in in talking about these stories and experiences and putting them into conversation with each other in a way that we can look at them we can look at our own ways of living with white supremacy of responding to it without having to necessarily talk about all the harm that it's done to us and their stories give us a way into some of those things that have been difficult for us even to speak about or to remember and so i had to think about what i wanted the book to do what the participants wanted the book to do there were so many stories they told and one of the things i asked everyone is you know i'm not going to be able to do justice to the beauty and complexity of all of the things you've shared with me but what is it what's really important to you that i do in terms of and with what you've shared and most people said two things i want other people of color to know we don't imagine this stuff that yes. it's real that it happens and the second thing is i want it to stop happening I want it to stop happening and I want your researcher you do something with this. <laughs> and so to me that was that was the job, right? To to try and do something with all of it, but and I have it. I've only scratched the surface. There's there's so much more to to think and write with. And it wasn't a seamless process, Ethel. I'm I'm making it sound like it was, but it was a it was a really difficult book to write. There were times I was really confused about what to do with so many of the really difficult things that people had shared and my responsibility in sharing certain things in deciding not to share other things and why some participants told me you know turn the tape recorder off or i don't want you to talk about this particular story or i don't want you to cite me by name but you can talk about themes that come out of my interview so some of them were quite directive about how they wanted their experiences and lives used or not and many of them were open they were like, do what you think is right do what you think is best i think what i appreciated about this book is how much heart went into it as a writer. And I appreciate how in academic analysis, as you so rightly mentioned, the tendency is to create like typologies, right? Like, or to create archetypes or to try to make people's narratives fit into an easy, generalizable theory. And I think one thing I appreciated was you casting a relational net across these different narratives that all of these narratives, you interviewed different women separately, but they all cohere together in a whole, right? Like, you know, you talk about excellence, right? But who gets to be excellent? Who gets to be smart? And who doesn't get to be excellent? And who doesn't get to be smart as, you know, classified by neoliberal educational institutions? That you know, shows that it's relational, right? Like someone gets to be excellent because then other people are portrayed as not being excellent. And so I appreciated having this kind of, as you say in the end, robust, relational, and reflexive forms of racial literacy, end quote. And I think that the book was pushing us to think that. And it did nuance my understanding of how race operates in these different sites. But speaking of that, though, robust, relational, reflexive forms of racial literacy. 
what does this mean? And why do you think it's important for us to move towards this? Yeah, I mean, I think putting the narratives, Ethel, into conversation with each other and also what was sometimes missing in the narratives, I think was really challenging because the book is not only an affirming one, it's also a critical one. Yeah. And so it, I had to be careful and I wanted to be careful to treat people's lives with complexity and with care and with generosity, but I also didn't want to let go of thinking about accountability. Yeah. And that sometimes our ways of trying to take cover, our ways of trying to stay safe in these really harmful systems mean that we intensify harm for other racialized people. And when I'm using we, and so there are different we's in the book, right? Sometimes the we is a very big category of Black and racialized women, which I problematize throughout the book and try and tease out. Sometimes the we I'm talking to are different, like non-Black racialized folks, right? Different kinds of brown folks or different we's. So, you know, I think our discussions about accountability have to be specific and contextual. And so that the different we's matter quite a bit in the book. I think Jackie Alexander's work has been really deeply influential. You know, she was at University of Toronto and Professor Alexander, I think really, you know, one of the things she insists on in in her book is really what we owe each other. And to me, it's a really important and beautiful question. And one of the things that I take from her, her work and thinking with her work and thinking as a student who learned as she would give guest lectures at the university and I would take every opportunity to go and listen to her was that we need to be schooled in each other's histories. Yeah. And the women in this book teach us like a lot of our entry point to political formation understandably comes from our own experience. And our own experiences can be really rich, important, beautiful, generative sites of knowledge production. But they're also limited, right? We also need to think about how we're situated in relation to other people, in relation to other communities. And the state does a lot of that work. So to me, this idea of, you know, and I was working a lot with France Windance Twine's idea of racial literacy, you know, a lot of this came from trying to put narratives into conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to say, wow, like, what is Usha doing to try and gain some safety in Mm -hmm. a system of racial violence in a way that is intelligible, partly because she's a brown subject, and so what does this strategy mean in relation to the way that brown communities participate in anti-Black racism or are seen to be good racial subjects in the, the multicultural nation? What does it mean that so many of us thinking about racial justice in our narratives, we're not at all thinking about settler colonialism in Canada? Mm. So, you know, it was based on the narratives, but it was also based on the really important conversations happening across Black and Indigenous solidarity activists, like thinking about all these formations and their specificity, and also what are our political commitments to one another, right? How do we develop those? How do we revise them? How do we sharpen them? And how do we understand the boundaries of our own narratives and that they are not self-contained? Yes. you know, and so that that was the 
the place I ended up. And, you know, Ethel, I finished reading your book this weekend. And it's interesting <laughs> because in the conclusion, you you end up in kind of an interesting place in terms of migrant justice activism and thinking with migrant workers. And it reminded me a lot of these kinds of relational, robust literacies that we need to cultivate. And I think those are, are histories that can be really important in terms of building the kinds of solidarities that we want for the kind of world that we envision, right? Which isn't just a world where we are safe, but a world where we are all safe together. So to me, that was the piece that came out of like the work of of many people, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think one thing I really and truly appreciated about this book, as I said, I, I appreciate a lot of things about this book, but another thing I appreciate was how you don't fall into... You deliberately don't fall into the trap of individualizing these narratives. And you also, I mean, I was chuckling as I was reading it because I was thinking about this within the university context. You were talking about, you know, we shouldn't just have, you know, privilege and oppression audits, right? Like, in the te- in, in, there's a lot of tendency as we engage in kind of, quote unquote, critical work for folks to think, oh, let's just kind of talk about her identity intersections and let's audit that. And you were like... Well, you were very generous. You're like, well, that, that's not where it should end, right? And so thinking about kind of the need to situate ourselves within histories and contacts and to think about this relationally, can you think about like current day university practices concerning, for example, uh, EDI or EDID and how you think this book can speak to why such approaches which tend to individualize oppression may not actually be productive for us in the long run? It's a big question, Ethel. (laughs) (laughs) You know, someone who really helped me think about the the circulation of diversity, particularly in higher education, you know, is Sarah Ahmad in terms of, you know, her book on being included that I think, you know, many of us have read. And I think I'm always careful when answering this question because like many people, I have a lot of critical things to say. And at the same time, there are lots of people trying to do very good work within lots of institutional of constraints. Course. A lot of people that I respect who understand the constraints of EDID and are saying, yes, it is a constrained model and system. And also, are there things we can do within these constraints that can be helpful or productive? And it is true that there are people that are just doing the work of the institution within these within this framework. So I think for me, you know, the question of how, you know, and I've learned this from, you know, particularly queer of color theorists of how institutions, how the state takes our dreams of liberation and returns it to us within these really domesticated frameworks is something we need to be really wary of. So I think that I'm in this moment that Many of us are are thinking about the genocide happening in Palestine yeah. and in Gaza and the West Bank, you know, the, the kind of intensification of violence in, in the West Bank by the Israeli state. And I think the question is, how does EDID help us in this moment? If this is the framework that we are being told is the framework through which to think about social justice in higher education and in education, what does it offer us? Does it offer us a way to stop the violence? And to me, this is the question. And if it doesn't, I think many of us would look around. It doesn't even stop the violence, Ethel. It doesn't even, 
in many cases on our campuses, acknowledge the violence that is happening, mm. then I think we need to ask ourselves what else do we need? And, you know, many people, you know, to go back to Sarama, have, have taught us that the university will perform a kind of anti-racist, anti-decolonial kind of politics without ever doing the work to do those things. And so it's the question I'm interested in and the question the book is interested in is how do we map out how these structures of violence work and how we can interrupt them? And to me, this is the question that I am interested in asking and thinking about and studying. And I think lots of people are asking that question in different ways and in different frameworks. But I think you're exactly right that the tendency to individualize these things, to not see them as part of larger social movements, which are pressing demands for land back, which are pressing demands for abolition, which understand that we keep each other safe, right? Like we are not going to find safety at the end of the state. I think those are the questions that the book is trying to get us really grapple with. I think, you know, I have received a lot of grace, Ethel, for my own political formation and development in terms of the many things I continue to not know, the many mistakes I make and have made politically from people who have invested in me. And so I think trying to model that feminist practice of having difficult political conversations is something I try to do in the book. And I, you know, I don't always do it well, but I try, I strive to do it. I strive to do it in my teaching practice, because I think we are all imperfectly trying to do the work. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just so our listeners know, we've been trying to schedule this conversation with Gulzar for months now. In fact, we had queued it up in October, but it was at that point when it became clear the horrific genocide that Israel is unleashing against Palestinians has been escalating, right? Um, and even yesterday, we're taping this February 12, seeing some of the horrific attacks at Rafah, right? Like, it's it's ongoing. And so for many of us, well, for academic, even in academic antis, this podcast, this context has had an impact on how we think about our work. But, you know, I feel like, can we talk about Palestinian liberation in the context of the university, in the context of, of this book, in the context of seizing back, you know, the university and making it truly a subversive and critical space away from kind of institutional imperatives to just be neoliberal degree providers? Yeah. I'm really appreciative, Ethel, of the space you and your team have made for these conversations about the genocide in Palestine right now, because I think there's been a lot of censorship and silencing and punishment and regulation and fear. And I think part of a response to that is to continue to speak publicly and collectively. It's really, I think, critical to to do that. In the book, you know, most of the participants in the book, Ethel, didn't identify at all as, as activists, right? In fact, they were like, I'm not an activist. <laughs> and I think it was really interesting because I'm hoping people will find the people in the book relatable. There was one participant who I think was the closest, you know, I, I don't remember if she would identify herself as an activist, but I think she did. Her name is was Noor. And she talked about her own family history and imperialism in Afghanistan and the dispersal of her family after the war across Turtle Island. You know, she talks about the bombing of her family home and she talks about coming to settler colonial Canada and not knowing the history mm. of this place. And 
learning and educating herself and meeting people who educated her and thinking like, where have I arrived and what kind of political project is this now that I am a part of? And she talks about doing work around um, BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanctions Against Israel. And she talks about bringing these places that we don't always talk about into kind of the circuit of analysis, right, that Uh. we need to think and talk about together. And so I think for me that, you know, this really relates back to that question of relationality and what our political commitments are to each other. And I teach a lot of theory classes. And for me, the question that animates all of those classes is how do we understand the violence and how do we interrupt it? And I think Mm. that is a really important political question in this moment. I think the astounding silence of university leaders as 11 universities in Gaza have been bombed, as our colleagues have been killed, as students have been killed. You know, we go to the protests, Ethel, and we say sentences that, you know, we, we deal in words. We're, we're, we're writers, we're academics that should not exist. They should not be put together with one another. Like, stop bombing hospitals, stop killing journalists, stop killing doctors. What, what are these sentences that we are saying? And so to me, this has to be a moment where those of us thinking about racial justice, those of us thinking about our responsibilities in settler colonial context, militarism, the complicity of the nation, the complicity of our educational systems, these questions have to be central or else what are we doing? You know, I want to say part of the book um, You know, I I say it very clearly, it doesn't set out to prove that racism exists because this is a no-win kind of game, right? I think about the last four months, Ethel, Palestinians have shown us all there is to see about human suffering. And it it has not been enough. It has not been enough, Mm -hmm. right? So it's. I think we need to understand the magnitude of the problem we are faced with which is not a problem of misinformation. It is a problem of certain people are not admitted to the category of the human. Mm. And when you are not admitted to the category of the human, any the state can exterminate you. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then the mm-hmm. state can also say it's not exterminating you. And so I think that contending with white supremacy and racial violence and settler colonial violence takes us to the heart of these problems. I don't Nothing feels enough, Ethel, nothing feels enough. But all I can say is, you know, when I feel this way, I go back to the things that I know, and that is traditions of Black and women of color feminisms and organizing and anti-war movements. And, you know, we remember that histories are long. Yes. And that, you know, it's like Angela Davis said, like, how do you sustain political failure, political disappointment? And the fact that everything feels so ineffective and what can we do in those moments, but wake up and keep doing what we know and believe to be right. We take instruction from Palestinians and we continue. I I don't know what else there is to do. And we weep and we grieve and we rage and we do all those things. And our feelings are irrelevant, are relevant to the extent that they motivate us to do things, to try and be effective with others. But other than that, it is, you know, for those of us who are not Palestinian in this moment, our feelings, from my perspective, are, are not relevant. It is about how can we, you know, as Miriam Kaba teaches us, right, how can we try and be effective? How can we educate ourselves? How can we work with others that are doing the work? 
How can we use the resources that we do have and the spaces that we do have to start doing the work, to continue doing the work, to deepen the work? Whatever that looks like for where people are, I think is is how I understand what we are being asked to do. I think those are such powerful words. And I think also speaks to kind of the underlying ethos of your work and of the book and of the fact that there are no easy ways to navigate this complex time, right? And, you know, listeners, we also were, the two of us were messaging last night or emailing and I was like, listen, like, it's so hard. Should we just pause again? And, you know, Golster was like, no, let's let's just continue because what else can we do, right? What else can we do? Um are there any final words that you'd want to give to our listeners? Just want to thank you, Ethel, for creating the space, for reading the book with such generosity and care. And one thing I do want to say is I have not been able to, you know, the life of, of writing a book and putting it in the world is long. The life of this book has been very long. I've not been able to find all the participants who participated in this book. Okay. And I have been able to find a bunch of them and have sent them copies of the book. But if you were a participant in this book, you know, I have lived with your, with your life and your story for a really long time. And I would really like to return the book to you. Um, so um, I would really be appreciative of, uh, of, of being able to, to do that. For sure. And hopefully some of them are listening to the podcast and can get in touch with you. Hopefully. Thank you again so very Thank much. You. After I finished my conversation with Golzar, I went to a Palestinian solidarity march denouncing Israel's aggression in Gaza, specifically its barbaric actions in Rafah, the last place in Gaza where people are able to seek refuge. I kept thinking as I listened to Palestinian speakers speak about the devastation that their families are going through as the world bears witness about what Golzar says in our conversation about how we now lack words to describe ongoing Israeli genocide in Palestine. Horror doesn't describe what is happening because we've gone beyond horror. None of what is happening makes sense. And yet it does. When thinking and contextualizing all of this within ongoing histories of empire and colonization, all many of us are left with in times like these are our feelings. Feelings of intense grief, anguish, rage, disgust feelings of helplessness and inadequacy. Yet for me, there's also a feeling of hope from seeing thousands gathered at such short notice. I feel hope that there is soon going to be a more liberatory future in the horizon. This is why Golzar's book resonated with me. The title, Fighting Feelings, brilliantly invokes our tendency to try to fight against the bad feelings that racism and systemic injustice brings up in our lives. But also, these same feelings are the spark that causes us to fight and to rise up. I encourage all of you to purchase Gulzar's book. And if you're based in a college or university setting, please ask your library to get a copy. It is a truly remarkable piece of work one with narratives that will stay with me for a long time.
And that's Academic Antis for this week. Before we go, we wanted to let all of you know that we will be following up on our previous interview with Sara Ahmed with the Feminist Killjoy Book Club. In preparation, we want to give you a chance to win a free copy of Sara Ahmed's book, The Feminist Killjoy Handbook. To enter, tag me at Tungohan or at Academic Auntie on Twitter and at Academic Aunties on Blue Sky or Instagram and tell us why you're a feminist killjoy. If you don't have social media, email us at podcast at and share with us your response. We'll announce the winners on the podcast in mid-March. Academic Aunties relies on community support, so please do spread the word about our podcast. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, and consider becoming a Patreon supporter or buying Academic Aunties swag from our website. Today's episode of Academic Aunties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Dr. Anisha Nath, and Wayne Chu. Tune in next time as we talk to more Academic Aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.